0: Hey Creeps, I'm Taylor and this is TGI Crime Day. to this week's episode of TGI Crime Day. I'm going to make this intro really quick because this is going to be a very long episode. As always, thank you for your support on this podcast. We're a little creep squad, but we are definitely growing and it's very exciting. Um, In the last episode, I shared a couple of listener files, which are the emails that you guys send me sharing your personal true crime and true crime related stories. Murders that happen in your hometowns, urban legends, ghost stories, all of the above. Basically anything that's true crime or creepy categories, I want to hear it. Don't forget, I will be reading them exactly as you send them, so write it like a story. Send those to me at TGICrimeday at gmail.com and go follow along on Instagram at TGICrimeday so we can discuss all the true crime things. Okay, let's get into today's case. The first time I heard about Kristen Smart was when I stumbled upon the uh, Your Own Backyard podcast, Chris Lambert is the host, and it is amazingly done. In the first episode, Chris mentions that there is very little media coverage and not a ton of articles or news specials um, about Kristen, and he was totally right. For a case that is clearly a murder with so many crazy stories within it, I was shocked that I had never heard of Kristen Smart. I did my best to dig around and I didn't want this to just be a summary of his podcast but I did get the majority of my info from um the Your Own Backyard podcast because it's truly the only place that has done a deep dive into this heartbreaking infuriating case. Uh if you like this episode and want to take the deep dive for yourself, I cannot recommend that podcast enough. Today's episode is going to be a long one and I feel like I barely scratched the surface on this case. So, as always, My sources are listed in the show notes and take a listen to the Your Own Backyard podcast if you enjoy today's episode. Kristen Denise Smart was born on February 20th, 1977, in Augsburg, Germany. She spent the first part of her childhood in Germany, but her parents decided to move back to the US when she was three years old. She spent most of her childhood and teen years growing up in California. Kristen was a very sweet girl, and a lot of people in the community knew her. She grew up babysitting for many families and was always the first choice for babysitters because she connected with kids really well. Uh, Her mom always described her as having a zest for life, even when she was a little kid. She made friends really quickly, and she adapted to her surroundings really well, and she had this drive, even from a very young age, that she wanted to do what she wanted to do, and nothing was going to stand in her way. When Kristen was in high school, she jumped in and started working her butt off to graduate a semester early so she could be accepted into a four-year college program, which, I mean, I don't know many high school students who have that much drive because that is a lot of work. She doubled her class load and was taking a few extra classes at San Joaquin Delta College so that she could graduate early. Luckily, her hard work did pay off and she was accepted to UC Santa Barbara and made a down payment on a dorm. Not long after she was accepted, she decided that she wanted to go to a college a little closer to her hometown instead. So Kristen started college in 1995 at California Polytechnic State University, which is a mouthful. So I will be calling it Cal Poly moving forward. Kristen originally wanted to study architecture, but then switched to communications. She had dreams of traveling the world as a reporter, which I think is amazing. Uh, When Kristen started at Cal Poly, she wasn't able to get a dorm room on campus because she signed up so late. So She got an apartment off campus with a roommate. Even though her roommate was really nice, Kristen really wanted to have that experience of living in a dorm on campus. I feel like that's something that is like the quintessential college experience. I did not do that because I did not start college until I was 28. (laughs) But it's something that I feel like is such a fun thing and such a thing that you look forward to as a teenager. Like, it would be so cool to live in a dorm on campus. So that was something that she really, really strived for. Um, She put her name on a waiting list immediately as soon as the semester started and was hoping that she would be able to get into a dorm on campus. After she finished her first semester at Cal Poly, she spent Christmas break with some friends, and then when she returned to school after Christmas, she was able to get one of those dorm rooms on campus. She moved into room 120 at Muir Hall in January of 1996. We did not go back in time. 96. On the evening of May twenty fourth, 1996, Kristen got dressed up and ready to go out for the evening. She put on a gray crop top, black shorts, and a pair of red puma tennis shoes. Kristen and three of her friends headed out to find a party. After driving around for a while, Kristen suggested going to a party at one of the frat houses, a birthday party for a guy named Ryan Fell that everyone called Swampy. I don't even want to know how he got that nickname. Kristen was really insistent on going to this particular party and was begging her friends to go with her. None of them were really interested, none of them wanted to go to this frat house, and I honestly don't blame them. Peter King of the LA Times described these certain frat house parties as, quote, a mix of testosterone and tap beer that makes female students feel less than comfortable. Uh, Agreed. So Kristen's friends dropped her off a couple of blocks away from the party and headed back to their own dorms. They told her to be careful and that they would see her later. Kristen headed out to the fraternity party on her own. There were differing opinions of what Kristen got into at this party. Some people said they didn't see her drinking at all. Other people said that she was highly intoxicated, but there was a lot of different stories, but people definitely remembered Kristen being there. Kristen was beautiful and friendly, and she was six feet tall. So people remembered her, and they took notice of her. Around 2 a.m., Kristen was found passed out on a neighboring lawn by two fellow students, Cheryl Anderson and Tim Davis. The two helped Kristen to her feet and said that they would help her get to her dorm room. After seeing Kristen stumbling around with Cheryl and Tim, a third student, Paul Flores, volunteered to help as well. Tim left the group first since he lived off campus and had driven himself to the party. Paul and Cheryl continued to walk towards Muir Hall with Kristen. Uh, They were basically holding Kristen up at this point, and they were getting close to Cheryl's dorm. So Paul offered to continue walking Kristen home since he lived closer to Muir Hall and because he was just such a knight in shining armor. Hi, really quick. I feel like it's worth pushing pause here to scream about some red flags. Uh, I am not, first of all, I am not blaming or shaming anyone in this situation. But let's learn that we never ever allow our friends to go to rowdy parties alone, and we don't go to rowdy parties alone to keep ourselves safe. Uh, it seems like getting into this situation was not normal for Kristen. Her friends all thought she would be fine to go out on her own, so they they didn't treat her like someone who's going to get drunk and pass out at a party she didn't seem like the type of person who did this on the regular so they probably assumed that she would be fine and get home safe like she always did um unfortunately that is not the case nobody assumed that she would be attacked nobody assumed that she would go missing and what happens next is no one's fault besides the person who took Kristen so in hindsight I am positive her friends feel horrible and I am not saying it's anyone's fault I'm not blaming anybody nobody come for me um I'm not focusing on what should have happened. Let's just focus on the opportunity to learn that we go out in groups. We watch out for our friends. Um, And with a caveat to that being that the real solution would just be that men do not prey on vulnerable women and attack them when they're trying to get home safely from a party. But that's never going to happen because, unfortunately, there are horrible people in the world. So the only thing that we can do is just keep an eye out for each other and uh, keep each other safe. So, listening to true crime has taught me a lot, including the group rule, and I wanted to start this podcast partially because of the things that I have learned from listening to true crime. Um, And it helps to bring attention to things like this so that we can all learn to be on the lookout and keep each other safe. Okay, moving on. On the next morning, May 25th, Kristen's roommates realized that she hadn't made it home the night before. They called the campus police to try to report her as a missing person, but unfortunately, since it was Memorial Day weekend, the campus police didn't take the roommate seriously. They believed she had gone off on a last-minute camping trip. You know, the kind you don't tell your friends about that you leave for in the middle of the night and don't take any supplies or money with you? Uh, don't get me started. (laughs) I can't stand these cases where it's like, oh, she's an adult. She's allowed to leave on her own. You've probably heard me say that before, and I'm probably going to say it again because unfortunately... A lot of true crime cases revolve around instances like that. It's just one of those things. So, Kristen never came home, and her parents never heard from her either. She had a phone call date with her family every Sunday evening, since she didn't have a cell phone because it was the 90s. So they had a specific time to talk every Sunday. Sunday the 25th, Kristen didn't call home. The police also wouldn't take her parents seriously when they tried to file a missing persons report. It took them four days before they finally listened Kristen's parents have criticized the police for their actions, saying that they could have lost very valuable evidence in that time, and I completely agree. Uh, I do appreciate, however, I do appreciate the fact that moving forward, police were very open about this mistake. Um, again, it's a learning experience that hopefully changed the way they handled missing person cases moving forward. Once they finally got it together and began looking into Kristen's case, actually looking, uh, they looked into her last known movements, starting with the people who attended the frat party. Apparently, many of the people who attended the party haven't been super open about everything that happened there. There were some people who attended who were members of the Kappa Kai fraternity. Listen, I go to community college. We don't have fraternities. I don't think we have fraternities. I'm also almost 30, so it's not like I'm exactly getting down with the kids on fraternity row. Anyway, I don't think a ton about, or I mean, I don't know how, like, a ton about how these things work. Uh, from what I understand, though, there's a pretty strict what happens in the frat stays in the frat kind of bro attitude. And apparently, Cal Poly has had some other incidents over the years with frats making less than great choices to cover their asses after screw-ups. In 2002, um, another fraternity at Cal Poly, Sigma Chi, threw a party one night where they served a charming little drink that they like to call "faderade," where the main ingredient was GHB, more commonly known as the date rape drug. This is why we don't go to fraternity parties. After attending a party at the Sigma Chi house, a student named Brian Gillis was found dead in his apartment after asphyxiating on his own vomit. Once word got around, the Sigma Chi bros g- decided to head out to a nearby lake for what they called a roundtable discussion. This led to more suspicion that they had been trying to get their story straight to avoid getting in trouble for Brian's death. Shortly after this incident, Sigma Chi was basically shut down and they had to pay over $300,000 to Brian's parents in a wrongful death lawsuit. Uh, the In Your Own Backyard podcast He talks about other shady things that happened with different frats at the Cal Poly campus over the years, Um, and basically the idea that something bad happened to Kristen at the frat house, such as being drugged with GHB, is not that wild of a guess. Uh, Many people who attended the party wouldn't give up a lot of information about what they saw or remembered from that night. However, there was one thing that could be agreed upon. Kristen was last seen stumbling home with three students. Eventually, she was last seen alone with Paul Flores. Paul Flores. Many people had different stories to tell about Paul's behavior at the party. Uh, He had been apparently flirting with many girls. I don't know if you could call it flirting as so much as bothering and cornering, but uh, he did not have success in his endeavors. One student said that while she was asking people for a piece of gum, Paul led her out to the backyard and tried to kiss her. Tim Davis, one of the students who would later help Kristen after she fell in the yard, said that during the party... He heard a loud crash, and when he looked, he saw Paul lying on top of Kristen and was unsure if Paul fell into Kristen or if Kristen fell into him. But either way, they were on the ground. Paul was on top of Kristen at some point during this party. A third student also had a weirder interaction with Paul as well. During the party, uh, Kristen had approached a guy named Trevor, who she began chatting and flirting with. Eventually, she pulled him into a bathroom and kissed him. According to Trevor, it didn't go any farther than that, and Trevor ended up leaving the bathroom, where Paul was there waiting for him, asking what he did with Kristen. (laughs) At first, um, Trevor was really worried that this guy was Kristen's boyfriend, but quickly realized that it was just Paul being a weirdo. Cheryl, um, who was the other female student who was helping Kristen get home, also had a story to tell about Paul. She she, She said that her and her group of friends always avoided Paul because he had a tendency to obnoxiously flirt and grope girls in their dorms. They even called him Chester the Molester and hated being around him. The night of the party, Cheryl said that Paul basically was trying to get rid of her when they were walking Kristen home. He kept saying that he didn't need her help. However, Cheryl stayed with them and helped prop Kristen up, who was stumbling around and could barely hold herself up. When they got to Cheryl's dorm room first, she tried to go inside and Paul tried to kiss her before continuing on with Kristen. Uh, She refused, of course, and he pestered her again, asking her for a kiss on the cheek. Again, she refused, but again, Paul can't take a hint, and so he asked her for a hug. Um, Again, she refused and basically ran inside. After hearing these stories about Paul, police contacted and interviewed him five days after Kristen went missing. Paul told police that he walked Kristen as far as Santa Lucia Hall, where his dorm room was, and then they parted ways and Kristen continued on by herself toward Muir Hall, where she lived. Uh, this is a red flag that really bothers me. If Kristen was intoxicated enough that she had passed out just on a random lawn, she was clearly in no state to get herself home. That was the whole point of having three people walk with her. And I feel like it's a very high possibility that she had been drugged. And the fact that she basically couldn't hold herself up and was stumbling around, it doesn't lead anybody to believe that she was all of a sudden able to walk all the way home from his dorm room. And here is yet another big, bright red flag. At the time of the interview, police noticed that Paul had a black eye. Paul had this whole plethora of tales to explain this black eye. In one story, he pulled a classic Beyonce, I woke up like this move, saying that he just noticed it that morning. In another story, he told them that he got hit in the face while he was playing basketball with some friends, but when they followed up with those friends, of course, because hi, that's what they do, this friend told them that Paul showed up to the game with the black eye and had scratches on his arms and skinned knees. So what was he doing? (laughs) Lastly, Paul told police that he had been working on his truck and fell into the steering wheel. And when police called him out on his story changing so many times, he told them it was because he was embarrassed that he'd been so clumsy working on his truck because, you know, the cops are there to judge your mechanical skills and agility. The campus police didn't take any photos of Paul's black eye or scratches. Let's just pause there for a moment because are you kidding? Luckily, Paul got pulled over on May 27th, a few days after Kristen went missing and he was arrested for driving with a suspended license. Earlier that year, in February, Paul had been arrested with a DUI and then failed to show up for court, which put a warrant out for his arrest. The Arroyo Grande PD took a mugshot of him for the suspended license and luckily they did because that is the only photographic proof of Paul's black eye. At the time that they arrested Paul, the Arroyo Grande police had no idea who he was because, of course, at this point, the Cal Poly Campus police had refused to file a missing persons report with um, the Arroyo Grande PD. It turns out that Paul actually had many different police reports filed against him before this time. There were different incidences of him... incidents? Incidences? Someone tell me how you're supposed to say that word. Different incidents... is... Of him climbing into a girl's balcony and watching her through the window, and um, he would make weird harassing phone calls to another room, and he had multiple sexual molestation allegations against him from the time that he was in high school up until Kristen went missing. None of these were taken seriously, uh, of course, because it was the 90s and I really truly hope that things are going better now, but I just don't think they are. The stories of Paul's odd behavior went on and on, it seemed including girls who went to high school with who referred to Paul as Crazy Paul or Psycho Paul. No matter way, which way you try to spin it, there were a lot of red flags that were pretty much just ignored in this case. Even with all these weird stories, Kristen's disappearance was not taken seriously. It took police 11 days to search Kristen's room for any clues. And it was 16 days before they searched Paul's dorm. Yet another red flag came up in Paul's police's interview. Uh, at the, as things started to get a bit more heated, Paul suddenly told police that he needed to leave. Since he wasn't under arrest, he basically was free to go whenever he decided. Paul told police that he needed to go because he had to be at his mom's house to help clean up some cement they had just laid. Spoiler alert, this cement is going to keep coming up in this case, and it's going to drive you absolutely nuts. Anyway, Paul leaves his police interview, and police don't speak to him again for a while after this. It took the campus police over a month to finally turn Kristen's case over to the San Luis Obispo County Sheriff's Office. By the time police were able to perform a proper search on Paul's dorm room, it was June 29th. All of the students had moved out for the summer, and a cleaning crew had already gone through all of the dorms. It's infuriating, truly. Police brought in cadaver dogs to help them search the dorms, and these dogs were allowed to go into every dorm on the Cal Poly campus. Their handlers weren't giving any information on the case and were just told to bring the dogs in to search for signs of human decomposition. These good boy police dogs were trained by the California Rescue Dog Association, or CARTA. I could seriously go on and on telling you about how cool CARTA is, but basically, they are a volunteer-based group that specifically trains dogs to detect all forms of human remains. These dogs have to go through two years of training before they can get certified to take on real-life cases, which seems reasonable for any kind of police force if you ask me my opinion um moving on so these hardworking pups are just wonderful and I love this part of this story so much okay so the very good boys that work for CARTA are let loose in the dorms at Cal Poly they search two buildings with no alerts then they get to Santa Lucia Hall and one of the dogs a golden retriever whose name is um Sierra she alerts outside of room 128 30 minutes later, a second dog is led into the hallway at Santa Lucia. The handler isn't told about the previous alert so that they can keep things unbiased. The second dog also alerts at the door of room 128. Third dog is brought in, same rules, and again, alerts at 128. One at a time, the dogs are let into the room and they each alert to the same place. There's a corner of the mattress on the left side of the room. The dogs then finish searching the other two floors of this specific building and none of them stop to alert anywhere else at this point the police take the mattress out of the room and remove the bed frame uh, before bringing in a fourth dog this dog also alerts at room 128 when he's let in he alerts to the exact spot the bed used to be he also alerts to a telephone in the room and one of the trash cans um i think this is a really cool part of this investigation and what they ended up doing to test these trash cans to make sure that there was no bias in the search, they signed, they lined up the trash cans with all of the other trash cans from the hallway that looked the exact same. And one by one, they let the dogs walk through the hallway and every single one of them still alerts to the same trash can. Amazing. Um, there's obviously no surprise here, but when they look into who was last living in room 128, it was, um, Paul Flores and his roommate, Derek Say. Since this was all happening on a college campus where word travels very quickly, of course, the hot gossip was Kristen going missing, and very obvious fingers were being pointed at Paul. There are many different articles that have come out uh, over the years of women speaking up about their encounters with Paul. Some of them are weird and awkward, and some of them are downright terrifying. One student told police that he jokingly said to Paul, hey, what did you do with Kristen? And Paul allegedly replied, she's home with my mother. Great. At this point, it's pretty obvious that Paul is the main suspect um, and the only person of interest. By the time police showed up with a search warrant for Paul's parents' house, Kristen had already been missing for two months. I'm not here to criticize police because obviously there is a lot that goes into getting a search warrant and I'm sure it's a whole thing, but seriously, two months? That is a really long time where someone who is clearly suspicious has had plenty of time to do whatever they need to do to get rid of evidence. (sighs) Once police do the search... It's really quick, and the only thing they end up taking from the Flores home is a police baton that is illegal for civilians to have, and then they also found three newspaper clippings about Kristen's disappearance. One is hidden under paul's dad um, Reuben's mattress, one is under Paul's mattress, and one is in a kitchen like in the kitchen somewhere. The newspaper articles are a very weird red flag because at this point Paul hasn't even been named a person of interest or a suspect, so what would make you hold on to these? articles about a missing girl that you supposedly have nothing to do with and then especially to hide them. Here's something that's going to drive you absolutely nuts. There were no cadaver dogs present during the search and they didn't even bring a forensic team. Uh, They didn't search any of the Flores's cars and uh, I just think that's weird. Later the sheriff's department said that this was because they weren't physically looking for Kristen at this time they were just looking for her belongings why they didn't think her belongings might be in one of the cars that Paul had access to is a mystery to me, especially when there is evidence of human remains found in his dorm room. Again, not here to criticize the police. I'm sure they were trying to handle the situation to the best of their abilities, but in hindsight, it's so frustrating because this ends up opening a whole can of worms. Apparently, Paul's parents were in the middle of getting a divorce, and Paul's mom, Susan, had moved out of their house and into her own place nearby. Susan's home was one that they had actually been using as a rental property before she moved into it. Paul had access to her separate home as well, but they did not know about the separate um, living situation. So they didn't even know that they needed to check Susan's property um, because they just thought that they were all living in the one house. And this is just a big fat bummer because remember, Paul allegedly told his friend he took Kristen to his mom's house. And there was also a story about needing to help her clean up some cement right around the time Kristen went missing. The second floor of home wasn't even on police's radar because they didn't know it existed. So we have some weirdness in Paul's story. And later, police would find out that Susan had listed the house as a rental property and removed it within a week of Kristen going missing. So just a little sus. In September of nineteen ninety-six, so just a couple of months later, Susan listed the house again as a rental property. A young married couple and their son moved into the house on October 1st of 1996, and when Joe and Mary Laster moved into Susan Flores' rental property, they had no idea that there were these insane rumors going around about Paul's possible involvement in Kristen's disappearance. Not long after moving in, the Lasters started to get letters and postcards from people they didn't know, letter after letter after letter, telling them to cooperate with the police and to tell their son to come forward with his information. At this time, their son was only six years old, so they obviously knew that these letters were not meant about him, but they just seemed to ignore these letters at first. A few weeks after they moved in, Mary was washing her car in the driveway when she found an earring on the ground. When she picked it up, she noticed that it had a dark red smudge on it. Both Mary and Joe agreed that it looked like dried blood. Mary and Jill worked at a nearby hospital, and I mention this because these are medical professionals. They aren't just going to freak out and assume something is bloody if it's actually just dried dirt or something explainable. Unlike myself, who sees any kind of weird stain anywhere, and jumps to the conclusion that it's a blood stain when really it's probably just like a dried chocolate milkshake or something. Mary decided to put the earring into a Ziploc bag for safekeeping. A few weeks later, two detectives came to their house to interview them and make sure that they didn't have any info about the Floreses. This is the time before investigoogling, so they still didn't have any idea that there was this story about Kristen and Paul's connection. Joe decided it would be best for them to just hand over the earring and tell them what they knew. Not everyone is a true crime creep who would look into the ins and outs of what the hell was going on in their neighborhood, so the Lasters just gave them the earring and left it alone. One day in November of 1996, Kristen's parents stopped by the gas station where Paul was working and tried to talk to him. When Paul realized who they were, he hid in a maintenance closet until they left. Not long after this, Paul quit his job and moved to Orange, California to enlist in the Navy. Kristen's parents, along with their attorneys, were worried about him basically trying to escape by joining the Navy. Investigators didn't quite have enough evidence to pursue a murder case against him, especially without Kristen's body, so instead, they filed a wrongful death lawsuit against him. Because of this, Paul was rejected by the Navy and they were able to move forward with the official court interviews, with witnesses in January of 1997. Unfortunately, this didn't go super well. Both Cheryl and Tim, the students who saw Kristen with Paul and helped her walk part of the the way home, refused to cooperate and come to their interviews. Um, Tim didn't even show up, and Cheryl came but said that she actually didn't see Kristen that night, even though before she claimed she helped her walk home. But that's all I'm going to say about that. The Lasters are also interviewed at this time, and it's a good thing that they were because they brought up this earring that was found in their backyard. This is the first time that Kristen's parents or their lawyers had heard about this earring. The detectives who took it from the Lasters didn't tell anyone about it, apparently. They tried to set up a time for the Smarts to go and see the earring with the San Luis Obispo Sheriff's Department um, so that they could decide if the earring belonged to Kristen or not. The Sheriff's Department took over a month to get back to them. So Stan and Denise Smart finally just decide to show up at the sheriff's department and demand to see the earring. Ready to be pissed? Uh, When they get there, they are informed that the earring is not there because it's been misplaced. Please excuse me while I go scream profanities. (laughs) Again, not here to be disrespectful of law enforcement. I could never be a cop. I have a lot of appreciation for anything and everything that cops do, but oh my... It's just one thing after another in this case to the point where it feels like it's cursed. So after the Lassiters participated in the deposition, Susan Flores um, sent them an eviction notice, kicking them out of the rental property, super mature and not at all weird. Luckily, Mary Lassiter is a total badass and was like, yeah, great. I don't want to live on your weird property anyway. But before I go, how can I help this investigation? On March 3rd, 1997, the police organized a search of Susan's rental property where the Lassiters were living. This time, they even remembered to bring cadaver dogs and brought a geologist. The geologist was able to perform the ground-penetrating radar on the backyard and found some abnormalities. The uh, geologist also noticed that there was evidence of fresh digging in the backyard. The cadaver dogs alerted to a specific place in the backyard where there used to be a metal trash can. In fact, it was a trash can that the Lassiters were specifically told not to use, move, or touch— Ruben Flores had been very specific about this trash can and had picked it up a few weeks before the search. The geologists and cadaver dogs were out in the yard working hard. Unfortunately, there was still no forensic team brought in to search the inside of the house. <sighs> they didn't dig up um, any of the yard at this time, which is infuriating because, as we know, there was a big concrete slab that had been laid very soon after Kristen disappeared. The police didn't dig up the concrete where the dog alerted because they believed the dog would alert anywhere there was trash. The Your Own Backyard podcast brings up a very good point about this and how weird that logic is because these dogs are trained specifically to alert to human remains. These dogs are used to searching in trash and landfills so they can tell the difference between where a garbage can was and where human remains were. But, okay. So, along with the dog's alerts, the geologist's opinions, and the glaring suspicion of this stupid concrete... Mary Lasseter had another story to tell about her time living at the Flores rental property. For months after they moved in, the Lasters could hear a weird beeping sound right outside the master, master bedroom window in these new planters that had been put in the backyard. Every morning at 4.20 a.m., they heard what sounded like a watch alarm beeping outside the window. They tried their best to search the backyard, many times looking for this watch. They dug around in the planters and hit another layer of concrete every time they tried. The alarm is significant because at the time Kristen went missing she'd been working as a, larf- a lifeguard in the early mornings before her college classes she had to be to work every morning at 5 a.m which means 4 20 a.m would be about when she would be getting up eventually the watch battery died or something because the alarm stopped police of course didn't see this as enough evidence to start digging up concrete but it is weird Once the Lasters moved out in April of 1997, Susan Flores moved back into the rental property and has never left. The address of her home has been printed in articles, she gets hate mail and nosy neighbors asking questions, but she still will not leave. Ruben also gets the same hate mail and questions at his home, but after all this time, they still will not move out of these houses. I just personally find that a little suspicious. Benefit of the doubt, maybe they stay put as a way to make a point and to stay strong, like, you're not going to push me out of my own home for no reason kind of a thing. But, and this is just speculation, of course, don't come for me. Doesn't it seem like you'd just leave if you had nothing to hide? Like, why would you want to stay in these houses where you were constantly being bothered and accused of something that you had nothing to do with? I just find that a little weird. At one point, Denise Smart made a photo collage of Kristen including baby pictures and school pictures, and sent it to Susan Flores, mother-to-mother. She sends it with a note pleading with Susan to come forward with any information that she might have. Susan, however, sends the collage back, along with a note saying, quote, If I wanted to see pictures of your daughter, I would have asked for them. Look at them yourself. Savage. I just... it's just mean. In May of 1997, almost exactly a year after Kristen went missing, Another bummer mistake was made um, in this case. (laughs) Here we go. At this point, there just isn't enough evidence to find Paul officially guilty or officially arrest him or to Sabina his parents so that they have to answer questions. So the sheriff decides to put out a statement saying, quote, We need Paul Flores to tell us what happened to Kristen Smart. The fact of the matter, we have very qualified detectives who have conducted well over 100 interviews and everything leads to Mr. Flores there are no other suspects. So absent something from Mr. Flores, I don't see us completing this, qu- this case. End quote. Hi, why would you say that? This statement just puts all the cards on the table and fueled Paul's attorney to do something so insanely frustrating, I can't stand it. In November of 1997, Paul was officially deposed and he refused to answer any questions. Not one question. He would not state the high school he went to, he would not state his sister's name, Father's name, mother's name, nothing. Every time the smarts attorney asked him a question, his own attorney would tap on a piece of paper that was in front of him and he would read the same phrase every time. Quote, On the advice of my attorney, I refuse to answer that question based on the Fifth Amendment of the United States Constitution. There is a clip of this part in um, your own backyard and just listening to him say that over and over, is so irritating and so frustrating. I literally had to fast forward through it because every time he said it, I got more and more upset. Um, Oh, quick fun fact. I didn't know specifically what the Fifth Amendment was other than that in crime shows, people always say I plead the Fifth. So I turned to our good friend, the Cornell Law website, and searched there. So the Fifth Amendment is the amendment that guarantees the right to a grand jury trial, forbids double jeopardy, and protects against self-incrimination. Yay for learning new things. Okay, moving on. Basically, at this point, the judge says to Paul's attorney, what you're doing is ridiculous and a waste of everyone's time. Uh, He obviously says it much more eloquently than that, but that's the gist. So Paul's attorney is very snotty when he says back, we are here to answer the questions that are required, so answer the questions or we will leave. They continue on questioning him, and he continues answering with the same statement. Paul pleads the fifth a total of 27 times in his deposition this deposition obviously does nothing to help the case move forward. Uh, There's also a bunch of back and forth of who is supposedly in charge of the investigation. Like a game of hot potato, the Cal Poly campus police say they turned the case over completely to the San Luis Obispo County Sheriff's Office, and the San Luis Obispo County Sheriff's Office keeps saying that they're just helping, are they though, the Cal Poly campus police. In my opinion, that's just a complete joke. It feels like everything has been a disaster up to this point and it breaks my heart for Kristen's family because I cannot imagine how much anger and frustration this heartache would cause. Um, I feel like it's one thing for a case to go cold because there are truly no leads and no evidence, but to watch the ball get dropped over and over and over is such a pain that no one should have to go through and I felt this exact same way about the um, Alyssa Turney case, where it's like, there's such an obvious answer right under everyone's noses, but it's just like, the pieces are not connecting, and it's so frustrating. The governor of California agreed that this case was a complete mess, and luckily there was a tiny piece of good that came from this crazy investigation. The Kristen Smart Campus Safety Act became a law in August of 1998. This is a law that requires campus police to team up with law enforcement immediately so another situation, like Kristen's, can hopefully be avoided. Um, I'm not going to get into all the details because this episode is already getting long, but um, let's talk about this quick. The Campus Safety Act was brought about just in time for another Cal Poly student whose name was Rachel Newhouse. She went missing in November of 1998, and for Rachel, it was all hands on deck. They didn't treat Rachel's case as a runaway and immediately started looking for her. People believed that maybe Rachel and Kristen's case could be connected after a trail of blood was found on a bridge near where um, Rachel went missing. Not long after, another girl went missing. Andrea Crawford went missing less than half a mile from where Rachel's blood was found. Less than a month after the two disappearances, the killer confessed. Rex Allen Krebs said that he abducted and murdered both girls. Their bodies were quickly recovered nearby, and people speculated that he had also murdered Kristen, but her body was not found, and Rex was in prison at the time of her disappearance. So the Kristen Smart Campus Safety Act was a small glimmer of good that came out of this otherwise nightmare of a case. Um, Polly unfortunately, still wasn't doing a great job at helping the Smart family or even offering any kind of condolences to them. Apparently, the campus told the Smart family that they would put a Kristen Smart memorial bench on campus, which is really nice, right? Wrong! They said that they would only put the bench on campus if the Smarts agreed to say that the campus was not at fault for what happened to Kristen or how her investigation was going. And then they also told them that they had the right to remove the bench whenever they wanted and they didn't need to notify Kristen's family if they did so. So the Smarts, of course, denied that garbage dump of an olive branch. There was also a point recently in 2017 when Denise Smart went to the campus to request a copy of Kristen's transcripts only to find out that the school had failed her. In every single class she was in the semester she went missing. I'm assuming this was because, you know, she didn't show up for her classes for the final weeks of school and couldn't take her finals because she was literally a missing person. In my opinion, putting failing grades in for a girl who went missing and was likely murdered on the college campus is just a slap in the face to the family. Luckily they were able to get these grades removed, Um, not that it brings Kristen back or does much, but I feel like it's something. Maybe I'm just being dramatic, but I feel like that's kind of an insult to her memory. Um, Kristen was not a failure. She was a really hardworking person who had a really great future ahead of her and a lot of big plans and dreams, and I just feel like out of respect for her memory, she shouldn't be showing up anywhere as a failure. Okay, end of tangent. Let's get back into the story. Eventually, the FBI does get involved in Kristen's case and works with the San Luis Obispo PD to form another search warrant for Susan Flores' property. By the time they go to do the search at Susan's house in 2000, there was a garage built over the spot where the cement had been laid in the first place. So if I'm understanding correctly, the summer Kristen went missing, they laid a layer of cement, then they did a second layer of cement, basically to make these really shallow planters, and now they've built a garage on top of that. When they go to the search, their warrant basically gives them the right to search the entire house and the whole yard they search the entire day and use ground penetrating radar and determine that they don't need to dig up the concrete, pissing everyone off yet again. After that search in 2000, things get pretty quiet in Kristen's case. In 2011, a new sheriff was appointed to re examine Kristen's case, which is a win for the Smart family. Sometimes to get these things solved and to get things moving forward, it just takes a new pair of eyes to look at all the information and figure out things that were possibly missed. 20 years after Kristen went missing, a huge development was made. Uh, Sorry, that was a text that just came through on my laptop. (laughs) Um, In September of 2016, 25 FBI agents and 15 officers from the Sheriff's Department went to perform an excavation search on the Cal Poly campus. A new lead that they had been following since 2014 led them to believe Kristen's remains, or at least evidence of Kristen's murder, could possibly be buried on the Cal Poly campus around the Big Cement P landmark. Earlier in 2016... They took more of the good boy cadaver dogs into the campus um, in January of that year, and they alerted near the P, which led them to do a search of 20,000 cubic feet of dirt, which I read was the equivalent of about a dozen large moving trucks just full of dirt. After four days of searching, they searched three different sites, and it was announced that items of interest had been found during the dig, but they still didn't find Kristen's body. At the time of the search, it was not announced what kind of items they found since it could hurt the progress of the investigation. But apparently there had been multiple new leads and new work done on Kristen's case over the last few years leading up to the search. So when they went in, they had a really good idea of what they were looking for. Um, The investigators kept a lot of this to themselves, which is really good because the public does not need to know every single thing being done in a case. I think mostly people just want to know that something is being done. Um, I mean, we all want to know everything all the time, but that's not how these things work. I think as long as the work is being done and being done by the people who need to and, you know, people who care about these cases and want to see cases solved, I don't think it always needs to be this public knowledge. Um, So, in fact, the sheriff's office said that the press conference was the only happening because... This was such a high traffic area and people would notice that they went in to do this giant search and if everybody saw where they were searching it wouldn't take them long to put together what they were searching for and then at that point it would just have been like rumors flying everywhere about what was being found so they decided to squash any questions and just say we found things but you don't get to know what after a few days of the search it was released that the that remains had been found but it was unclear if they were human or animal remains The Sheriff's Office said that they would not comment further on that until a full analysis had been done on the remains to determine if they were human or animal. It's been years now since this search at Cal Poly, and there has never been an update on those specific remains. So, there's that to stew on. During the press conference, the police also said that they were not ready to disclose where, but they were focusing on several other locations. With a cold case this crazy, with so many twists and turns and so much seemingly obvious evidence you'd think that there would be a ton of specials made about Kristen you'd assume that there were multiple podcasts a ton of media attention a ton of tv shows but unfortunately that just was not the case for Kristen which is why as I mentioned at the top of the episode Chris Lambert decided to dive deep into this case and try to get some media attention for this family as we have learned from cases like Alyssa Attorney, media attention could be the thing that puts pressure on law enforcement to solve these cases p.s if you're not familiar with the Alyssa Attorney case check out episode one of this podcast okay moving on So Chris started In Your Own Backyard, sorry, I keep calling it In Your Own Backyard, it's just Your Own Backyard, the podcast in September of 2019, and I cannot even express how beautifully done this podcast was. Um, I listened to it earlier this year, and I have not been able to stop thinking about it, which is why I wanted to cover this case. The podcast ran from September to November with six episodes, and once the podcast started, there was a ton of new support for the case. Um, people were raising money to try to get a new billboard for Kristen to update the one that had been up since 1997, and people were also talking about raising money to be able to dig up the concrete that's in the back of the Flores' home. Obviously, this is something that would need, like, a police warrant. People can't just be like, we're digging this up and whatever, but there have been a lot of different people who have offered to do the work for free. There have been people who have offered to, like, re-landscape the backyard if they will let them dig it up, but the Flores family will not let that happen. Um, So, in November of 2019, there was a final episode released, and this episode spoke about new leads, and it left the case kind of open-ended with hopes that there would be more updates in the near future. Not long afterward, new developments came to light in Kristen's case. Almost 24 years after her daughter went missing, Denise Smart got a very interesting phone call. There was a man who I believe was former FBI who was helping the Smarts to look into this case and had some new information. Denise says that she remembers him saying, quote, be ready. This is going to be something you don't expect. We want to give you the support you need. So that was in January of 2020, which is this year. uh, If you're somehow listening to this podcast in the future and it's been some time, we're talking about January, 2020. Um, So January 29th, 2020, Kristen's family put out the following statement. She said, quote, congratulations to Chris Lambert for his outstanding podcast, Your Own Backyard. His seventh episode is now live, and it is a must-listen. Thanks to Chris and all the supporters who have made such an amazing difference. Your Own Backyard has been instrumental in renewing interest in Kristen's investigation and generating many new leads. We now know that the San Luis Obispo County Sheriff's Office has issued 18 search warrants on nine locations, conducted 91 new interviews, filed 364 supplemental reports, and obtained 140 new pieces of evidence. Later today, the Sheriff's Department will confirm that they now have two vehicles in their possession. Keep the faith and know that you are making a difference. End quote. And that was all correct. Authorities announced that they had made, um they had found, sorry, they had found both vehicles that Paul had access to back when Kristen went missing. So the reason that they didn't already have these vehicles in their possession was because they were really hard to track down. Apparently there were, again, a plethora of stories told by the Flores family why they didn't have these vehicles, but for one reason or another, both cars were no longer in their possession quickly after Kristen disappeared. There were some stories of them being stolen or something where they were sold. There was one where they said, it seems like there was one that I read about that they said that the car had been sold, but they sold it in cash and so they didn't have record. It was a whole mess. But in February of 2020, um, four search warrants were put out for different locations related to the Flores family. Two of the locations were San Luis Obispo County, one was in Washington State, and one was in Los Angeles. There wasn't a ton of info on how these searches went because it was really new and they have to keep these things quiet like they did in the Cal Poly search. But there was a statement from authorities saying that they found multiple items of interest during their searches that were being analyzed. In the most recent article I could find from April 22nd of 2020, um, they didn't really have any more updates and that was the last thing I saw. It is November of 2020, so if you're listening from the future, hi, from the future. I hope things are going well. Um, But currently, The last public search was served in April of 2020. They said they found more items of interest and are still continuing the investigation. I really just want to see justice in this case, and I want Kristen's family to have some kind of closure. I hope that we don't have to wait too long to hear more about Kristen's case, Uh, but you know, as these things go, they take time. Developments take time, and I think that there is a lot of really hard work, amazing work being done behind the scenes. So, I'm so happy that investigators are taking this really seriously and working so hard. I feel like on this second round of investigation, things are going so well and it really helps to kind of make up for all of the craziness that happened in the very beginning. Um, It's also really cool that we live in a time where real people can get media exposure for their missing and murdered loved ones And I hope that you'll take time to share this case with your friends and listen to the your own backyard podcast It's amazingly done Uh, We've seen it a lot of times now when people band together to support these cases They get the attention they need and that's what puts pressure on people and that's what puts pressure on the situation And that's how these cases end up getting solved Thank you for sticking around for this very long episode Uh, If you liked it, I hope that you will subscribe and leave a rating and a review and please 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 send me your hometown stories. I shared a few in my episode last week and I loved doing that. So send me your hometown stories to tgicrimeday at gmail.com and I will talk to you soon. Bye.